This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Bates! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help you break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Stoked that we've got a second episode uh, to cover the second half of our live show. We're going to be speaking to two expert investors about some of the companies that we can all invest in. And not only uh, invest in Australian alcohol companies, but there's plenty listed over in the States. In fact, some of the biggest in the world are listed over in the States. And that's why we partnered with Stake. We did partner with Stake for this one. Uh, you know, you can sign up uh, a brokerage account with them and they'll offer $0 brokerage. Um, they'll put Wall Street at your fingertips. And the best news is if you use the code EquityMates and fund your account in 24 hours, They'll be slinging you a free stock in either Nike, Dropbox, or GoPro. So none of them are alcohol stocks, but you know they're all pretty good companies. Can't complain. I'd, with be, it. I'd be fingers crossed for Nike. No offense to Dropbox or GoPro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now before we jump into it, I also just did want to make uh, a comment around the Equity Mates community. It was so good to see many of you at the live event. You know we had a great time after the show, having a few beers and some food, and, and really catching up and, and chatting all things stocks. So thank you for those that uh, a bought tickets and came along. B, apologies if you didn't because they sold out really quickly, but we did also live stream it. If you want to watch the show, it's available on our Facebook page and Stakes Facebook page as well. So head over and check that out. The Jeez. good news is that we've partnered with Stake again to do a more all-access live show. So stay tuned for that. Watch this space. People would have to be super keen to listen to this podcast and then go and watch the live stream. People may want to see with the, awesome, I, the awesomeness that it was. I back it. <laughs> yes. So without any further ado, here is the second half of the all-access live show with Stake. What we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about is uh, some stock specifics, which we know you all want to get into the details and actually have a look at some investment opportunities because there are plenty of uh, massive multinationals and it's sometimes difficult to understand where we should put our cash. So to introduce our panel on my left, we have Chris Hernandez, who is a senior investment analyst at Evans and Partners International Fund. And on our right, we have Mark LaMonica, who is the head of the uh, individual business Morningstar program. I totally butchered that, but he's from Morningstar. You almost did well with all the intros. The last one let you down. Anyway, uh, Mark is from Morningstar and will be able to give us uh, some pretty great detail on how their programs work and, and we can go from there. So thank you guys for joining us and uh, we'll get stuck in. So we're going to talk about individual stocks here. We're going to uh, get their set up. Mark and Chris's assessment on overvalued, undervalued uh, stocks that they might hold. We've got to say, we've always got to say, nothing here is personal investing advice. Do your own research. This is just general advice and a general conversation about stocks. In saying that, uh, Chris, <laughs> let's start with you. Um, let's start general. Um, what are some of the key considerations that retail investors should be keeping in mind when we're thinking about investing in the alcohol and beverage industry? Um, I guess, first of all, you need to, um, as the previous panel described, you need to know who are the spirits players, who are the big uh, beer players, and then you've got wine players as well. But 
maybe start with spirits. You virtually every single brand that you know and you drink is owned by a big, large multinational company. The largest Western-style spirits, and I'll make this distinction because um, the two largest Chinese spirits companies, they are the two largest companies in the world. So you got the maker of uh, Maotai that's actually got a market capitalization of 400 billion. So it's about four times larger than Diageo. And then talking about Western spirits, you've got the number one player, which um, it's, it's Diageo. They've got uh, brands like uh, Johnny Walker, uh, Smirnoff, um, Captain Morgan, uh, Baileys. And the second largest player in, in the Western spirits would be Pernod Ricard from uh, the French company. Brands like Absolute, um, Jamison, and, and Mattel as well. So those, you, I guess you, you need to know what your exposure and and within that they've got regional uh, regional fortes as well. So um, you, you need to make sure that not every be- alcoholic beverage company has got the same growth drivers. It seems to me there's maybe four main players and they own everything. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and same with beer. You've got um, AV Inveb, the, it's, it's a giant. Obviously, the, the Stellas and Budweiser of the world. Then you've got um, Heineken, obviously the Heineken brand, Soul, Tiger. So it's all very, very consolidated. And as I mentioned, every single brand that you get, you buy, it's a major brand. It's owned by a large multinational. So, Mark, from your perspective, what are some of the, I guess, general considerations investors should keep in mind if they want to invest in this industry? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, number one, what is all these alcohol stocks we're talking about? They're consumer defensive stocks. So, no offense to Irene, what that means is <laughs> the economy's good, the economy's bad, people drink, right? So, you're not getting cyclical, like a cyclical stock, you're not getting those ups and downs people generally keep drinking no matter what's happening in the economy. So I think that's the first thing. The other thing is Morningstar. So if I talk about Morningstar, we have analysts all over the world. We cover 21 stocks that fall into these sectors, these sectors and industries. And so the two things that make a great investment, so you guys talk about Buffett a lot, two things that Buffett always talks about. Number one, a great company. So what's a great company? A great company is a company with a moat. That means they have a sustainable competitive advantage. That means as investors, over time, those higher margins accrue over time. That's what we want. They compound. So we cover 21 stocks. 18 of them, our analysts say, have moats. And and that's a lot. So we cover 1,600 stocks globally. Way less than half have a moat rating from us. But 18 out of 21 in this industry have a moat. And the two different moat sources, so we have five different moat sources at Morningstar. The two that it comes from, so number one, intangible assets. So think brand. We'll talk a lot about brand, right? We all know that. We walk up to the bar. We order a brand. Um, We all understand this is what we drink, and, and we'll get more into this. And then the other one, of course, is cost. So cost advantage. So particularly with beer, and I'll talk about beer later, there are huge economies of scale. So that's one side of it, great companies. We think a lot of these are great companies. And then the other side is price, right? So Buffett always says, pay a compelling price. And I will say, globally, if we look at those 21, we think that they are 14% overvalued. If we take like an equal weighted um, look at those companies. So we do think they're overvalued. To compare that, we think the Australian market's about 11% overvalued, US about 10% overvalued. So we do think they're a little bit expensive, but we'll talk about some opportunities. So I think those are the two ways that we'll try to frame these things, right? Great company, compelling price, and uh, yeah, hopefully it should be interesting. 
Well, let's get stuck into it. Um, we'll start with you, Mark, and then we'll head across and talk about Diageo with you, Chris. So, as you said, you cover 21 stocks internationally, but let's take a look at the biggest American company, Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, uh, InBev, their ticker is BUD. It's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It has a market cap of about $120 billion uh, and did just shy of $50 billion in revenue. Quick fire response, overvalued or undervalued? Uh, we think it's undervalued. The most undervalued, we think it's 22% undervalued. Wow, that's pretty significant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk us through it. Uh, why do you think it's undervalued? And for people who aren't familiar with the company, can you tell us a little bit about it and some of its major brands? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely, as a token American here, because I can say Anheuser-Busch, <laughs> I, of course, get to, uh, get to talk about this. But the ticker Bud is Budweiser, so one of their biggest brands. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the company. So company has acquired a bunch of companies. It is a global beer giant. So they sell twice as much beer as the second biggest company, uh, second biggest company that sells beer. And, uh, and they recently bought, a couple years ago, South African breweries. And they paid a lot for it. They took on a lot of debt. And they are now obviously trying to pay that off. And a couple of things have happened. Number one, they cut their dividend a couple of years ago. People do not like that. Investors don't like that. So that's been a problem. The other thing is they've been hit pretty hard with COVID. So they have big operation in Brazil. Brazil's obviously not doing well. South Africa, where they actually stopped selling alcohol, um, which is an issue since they just bought South African breweries. So the company is, we think, temporarily going through some issues. Um, but overall, it's we feel, is a great company. Wide moat, our highest moat rating. We think they have a sustainable competitive advantage for over 20 years. And a lot, of, a lot of, if we look at breweries, a lot of it isn't global. You don't get those economies of scale globally, but you get them regionally. If you think about sharing ingredients, manufacturing different beers in the same plants, but they have built this model where in North America and South America and Europe and in South Africa, they built these giant regional hubs that they're able to wring cost out. And their cost-cutting program, I mean, what they've been trying to do has not happened as fast as they expected because of COVID and some of the issues. And beer, and I think we heard this from the previous panel, beer has been particularly hit with, uh, with the COVID restrictions because it is on premises, right? It's pubs, restaurants, and people are drinking beer. But we think this is going away. We think the stock's undervalued. And uh, yeah, as I said, it's our cheapest stock. So when you, you mentioned they have 18 of 21 stocks that have a strong moat, and we all know Buffett talks about the the value of a strong moat, and you've mentioned there that uh, Bud also has a strong moat. Everyone has a strong moat. What is driving these moats, and how do you determine between everyone's moats? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and listen, me obviously saying that 18 out of 21, that's a lot. But if you look <laughs> overall, um, you look overall, less than 50% of the companies, the 1,600 companies we cover have a moat. The big thing, I think the industry just, there are some industries that just have certain qualities to them. And it is those two things, like it's number one, brand. And if you have brand, most people don't walk up to the bar and order a gin or a whiskey. People go and they ask for their brand. And I think these companies have been able to build these huge brands. With Anheuser-Busch, uh, InBev, the easiest one, well, for me to talk about is, of course, Budweiser, Bud Light in the U.S., huge brand. But they've also done the same thing in, uh, in South America, in Europe, in South Africa. So, yeah, it's building a brand and then just the natural cost advantages, particularly around breweries. So we say very different things about 
winemakers, like if we talked about treasury, we would say very different things about that, where it's harder to get both of those two things as a wine producer. But I think particularly in spirits and, uh, and in beer, brands are important. And also the ability to take cost out of the process, the bigger you get is important. So uh, you said 18 out of 21. Can you name and shame the three that don't have a moat rating? <laughs> well, so I, I tried to come up here without my notes, which I left back there. So the answer is no. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, find, uh, find Mark afterwards and exactly. he'll have his notes and he'll tell you the three. Exactly. My, my team's <laughs> ripping them up back there to embarrass me. Oh, there we go. See, they're back there. But, uh, but yeah, come find me afterwards. Okay, nice, nice. Should we uh, move to Chris? Uh, so we're going to move away from beer and we're going to talk spirits. Uh, Evans and Partners has invested in Diageo. So uh, I assume if we played the quickfire overvalued, undervalued game, you would say undervalued? That's a fair assessment, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's not play that game. Instead, uh, can you tell us about the company, what it does, some of its major brands? Yeah, I guess maybe taking you through our investment process a little bit and you've got starting with business quality um, as i mentioned before diageo is the largest uh, western spirit uh, producer in the world so they've got roughly depending on the data you get from about 15 to 20 percent market share and they do own uh, 25 of the 100 top selling brands in the world so back to mark's point that you they do have very strong brands and being the largest producer comes with a lot of scale advantages. So they've got about 1.6, 1.7 times the revenue of the next largest competitor, which is Pen or Ricard. And um, yeah, so that just uh, builds, builds on, on the moat. And it's a highly profitable business. The gross margins about uh, over 60%, operating, operating margins um, over 20%, return investor capital um, about 18%. So it's, it's super profitable. And uh, the drivers of growth are, are very strong, and I guess this applies to most of the spirit industry. And I guess the key for them is premiumization. So people might be drinking less, but they're drinking better. And uh, for the spirits industry, I think that they're blessed with this uh, premiumization because it's 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 very tangible. You've got I don't know other consumer product companies that talk about premiumization, but it's not as tangible for them. Like Diageo, year in year out, about half of their organic growth comes from premiumization, uh, product mix, price, and it's a mid-single-digit uh, growth industry. But um, it's as Mark mentioned, it's super resilient. People don't stop drinking. They might downtrend a little bit, but um, the, the growth is still there. And I guess um, in terms of we, we look at management, the quality of management, and we like the CEO, uh, Ivan Meneses, he joined, he became the CEO in 2013, so he was quick. We want CEOs that come, come to the leadership, they want to build on the moat, they're good capital allocators. So what Ivan did is right away he changed the route to market model, so they changed the sales structure. He's invested in technology. This is, yes, it's, it's a, a few years ago. So he sold digital technology data. So he actually made the company much more agile. He removed much management layers. So it's a much more decentralized company. Uh, they're faster to react. And in terms of capital allocation, um, what you see with some, um, some CEOs that they want to keep growing, they want to keep acquiring businesses, acquiring brands. Again, sometimes they the remuneration is it's um, it relates to the size of the company. What we've seen with Diageo is that they've actually made more divestments than than acquisitions since he joined. Uh, so it's uh, it's it, it bodes well for uh, for the management quality and and valuation as well. So we we paid about 23 times earnings, 
Diageo typically trades about um, high single digit premium to the S&P 500. We use the S&P 500 as a market uh, proxy and uh, normally trades at, at about 20% premium. Obviously, with all the COVID uh, issues and uncertainties, we, we thought taking a longer term um, opportunity to, to get into the stock and, and we've, uh, we've done reasonably well. So you mentioned there that a big driver of organic growth is the premiumization of uh, their brands and the way people are drinking. What are these geographies, I guess, or some of the major countries that are driving that growth? Um, I think it's, it's pretty broad-based and um, it, it's not necessarily going from uh, red label to blue label uh, in developed countries, but it's also in, in emerging markets, which like India or uh, you might go from unbranded spirits to branded spirits or homemade, homebrewed spirits to, to branded. So there's, yeah, just got, they have over 200 brands. The bulk is its premium to super premium, but they've got a several more value brands to just make sure that they capture the consumer uh, with it every price point. But it's, it's pretty broad based. So another alcohol brand that's benefiting from this premiumization trend is LVMH. And they're really pushing hard into China. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with LVMH, Google their brands after this and look at every major champagne brand in the world, they own them. So that, that's the business we're talking about amongst a number of other things. Uh, is Diageo uh, pursuing a similar strategy, like really trying to push into China? Um, and they, China is not a huge market for them, which is a bit, I guess, con counterintuitive because most of those big international players, they, they have got a large skew to China or it's a big driver of growth. Uh, for Diageo China, it's only about 5% uh, of the sales. And um, what you have with the Chinese market, it's only about 1% of the consumptions is Western spirits. So it's very local baiju beer, um, beer spirit. So. For them, they do have a Baiju company in China that's growing pretty strongly, but compared to a 400 billion market cap Muay Thai, it's still relatively small. But um, whiskey is doing pretty well. Their flagship uh, spirit there will be Blue Label. And the Chinese consumer, they, they like cognac. So that's, uh, that's the, biggest, uh, the biggest Western spirit there. So we've covered, um, I guess, two of the biggest uh, alcohol companies in the world. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, let's just do a bit of a, a, a stock take, I guess, of, uh, of where we're at and rattle off some of the characteristics that you love to see in a company. Uh, and if you can tell us which stocks kind of fit the bill for these characteristics. So if we are talking about a company that has the strongest portfolio of brands, um, would love to get both of your opinions. Obviously, you're going to say Diageo because you're invested <laughs> in it, but uh, I'd love to get your opinions on perhaps, yeah, a company that you think has the strongest portfolio of brands. Okay. I, I mean, personally, I would probably say Diageo as well. I, uh, I personally bought it in 2008. So for the younger investors, that was a real bear market that lasted <laughs> more than three weeks. But, um, but I want to do something different. So I'm going to go with, uh, we think Anheuser-Busch and Bev as well, but I'm going to go with Brown Foreman. And mostly because Jack Daniels, I was drinking Jack Daniels last night trying to prepare for this. <laughs> and uh, they have a pretty great staple of brands as well. Jack being the, uh, Jack being the key. So I'll go with that. Are you going to stick with Diageo? I, I, we do like Diageo, and, 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 but maybe something that could complement um, Diageo's portfolio would be um, uh, Remy Cointreau. So it's a French company. About 70% of their sales uh, is it's cognac. 
about a third of their sales go to China. And what we like about the company, it's, it's the heritage of the brand. So you've got a uh, Remy Martin that's got about three centuries of heritage. So it, uh, you won't wake up tomorrow and there's a new uh, Remy Cointreau or Remy Martin um, in, in Stockton at a bar. And obviously, it's, it's a, there's a scarcity element to it as well. So there's only that much cognac that you can produce in a, in a few regions in, in France. So that, that, that really sort of elevates, elevates the, uh, the value of the product, the value of the brand, and obviously very strong drivers in, in China. So that was strongest portfolio of brands. Uh, let's move to best growth prospects. And let's, let's think long-term here. You know, we want to be long-term investors at Equity Mate. So uh, best alcohol company with the long-term growth prospects. Okay, well, I'm going to keep trying to do new things here so I don't keep repeating things. I'm going to go with Constellation. So Constellation, Corona. Has everyone heard of Corona? So the really interesting thing about Corona is, my personal opinion, it tastes really bad. It's not a great <laughs> beer. But the amazing thing is, it's produced with the same cheap ingredients that everyone makes light beer in the U.S. with, but they sell it for 30% more. So the interesting thing about Constellation is the U.S. is becoming more and more Hispanic. So Mexican brands are gaining more and more traction. They're selling it for a giant premium. I think their margins over 40% on Corona, which to me is amazing because once again, I think it's a terrible beer. So, uh, so I think the trends in the US and I think uh, the ability for them to get a premium price, I'm gonna go with Constellation Brands. So Constellation's an interesting one because in the last panel, uh, we had Dan talking about uh, hemp being a big thing. Constellation have obviously made a lot of investments in that space. Is that, is that part of the thesis? Yeah, I mean, they own, uh, they own this company called, or most of this company called Canopy, which is a cannabis producer in Canada. There's been some interesting stuff going on with cannabis, mostly that Canadians are not smoking as much weed as everyone thought they would when they legalized it. So. A little bit of the bubble is starting to come down, but still, I think long term, um, hopefully those Canadians, it's cold, they don't know what they're doing up there, so hopefully they'll keep smoking weed, and, uh, and yeah, it's an interesting part of Constellation. So Chris, do you have a company for great growth prospects? Look, I'm going to stick to, to Diageo we, uh, in our fund. We, uh, we've got an investment horizon of five to seven years, so I think it, it fits just perfectly. And the portfolio of brands, I mean, what, what you want is diversification. So categories go up and down, you've got gin, uh, you've got tequila, so you want something uh, pretty diverse, not only by category, but by region as well. And the tequila portfolio is just killing it. And now they've got Don Julio, the last, last half the te- in the US, te- the tequila brands grew 80%. Casamigos that you might recall, they bought that from, um, uh, it was George Clooney's tequila brand a few years ago, that grew uh, 140% last half. So that they're really killing it in, in the tequila space. Can I assume you're going to say Diageo for the rest of these questions? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Just, just on that George Clooney uh, tequila story, I don't know if everyone saw Conor McGregor sold his whiskey $600 million, I think it was, yesterday. Uh, what is it with celebrities uh, making alcohol? Is it just you need to slap a celebrity on it and you can get a $100 million plus valuation? Is that, is that the game at the moment? I mean, apparently. I uh, actually I saw that on your Instagram account. I started following your Instagram account, so that's the only reason I knew that. But uh, but yeah, I make my own tequila. Nobody buys it, so I don't know what's going on. You need uh, need Bryce's face on it. Australia's most famous drinker. There we go. We can uh, we can figure something out. 
Um, all right, so we are just about to get to Q&A, um, but one more question to close it out, I think, for Mark would be, uh, what is one of the most undervalued at the moment, according to Morningstar? Is it uh, what we kicked off with? Well, so I obviously, I already said what is our most undervalued, yeah. so that's, uh, that's Anheuser-Busch InBev. Um, Molson Coors, so now I remember, Molson Coors is one of the 21 that does not have a moat. If anyone's ever had Coors Light, you'll know why. It is terrible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that is our second most undervalued. I think that's around 17, 18% undervalued. Awesome. Well, guys, um, thank you very much. It's been fascinating getting a bit of insight into what you're investing in, what Morningstar are doing over there and, and uh, covering 21 stocks. So uh, go and check out Morningstar if you do want further analysis. And uh, yeah, Chris, Mark, thank you very much. We are going to, well, yeah, Pleasure. round of applause. Uh, we are going to get the panel back up for about 15 or 20 minutes of question time. We've got some questions coming in from online. All right, um, I guess we'll start with the actual, I, I guess, fund managers or in, uh, investment analysts. How does investment in alcohol fit with an ESG theme focus? Will a greater focus on ESG affect alcohol stocks? And that is from Howard. Um, I, I can start with that. And I, I guess when, when looking at ESG, you, it's not about a product doing harm necessarily or not uh, with, with alcohol. Um, it's, it's all about what the company is doing to maybe tackle some of those, I guess, question marks. It's not black or white, if it's ethical or not. But Diageo actually has a AAA rating uh, ESG wise. It's, it's, it's the highest rating uh, they can have. So they're doing a lot of things to, to spending a lot of money trying to get campaigns about uh, positive drinking, um, tackle underage drinking. Uh, they're doing a lot of things to, to reduce their carbon emissions, uh, not just only them, but the suppliers as well. So they've got 50% of the board, is, is, uh, it's, uh, it's a very diverse board. So it's 50% uh, female, 50% male. So it's all those attributes that uh, they count towards a proper ESG rating. I, I, feel, I feel we've got to ask Irene that question as well. Do, would alcohol uh, companies fall in a, an ethical investing framework? That's a really good question. Okay, so alcohol companies as an investment being ethical, but a lot of alcohol, do you mean brands? Like wine brands? Because there's, I think like there's a lot of alcoholic brands that are making non-alcoholic ethical products. So I'm all about that. I don't, I think that, I think the more people invest in, but yes, but I think we need to hold them accountable. That's the, that's the answer, yes. Fair enough. Equity Mates, we're just going to interrupt the show to give Stake a quick shout out. We really want to thank them for helping us put this uh, live event on and for helping us put future live events on. That's right. Watch this space. Um, but for both Bryce and I, we use Stake and for us, it's been an epic way to get access to the US market uh, all at $0 brokerage. That's right, Ren. $0 brokerage, you can trade over 4,000 US stocks uh, and you know place trades uh, within seconds, which is pretty important when it comes to moving in and out of stock positions. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. And what's also important is uh, getting stuff for free. Yes. And if you use the code EquityMates when you sign up, and if you fund your account within 24 hours, you get a free stock, either Nike, Dropbox, or GoPro. So get a free stock, get access to the US market, get access to $0 brokerage. 
what are you doing? <laughs> yes, that's Equity Mates without a space. Uh, so make sure you, you go and put that in when you sign up. But uh, here's the second half of the uh, All Access show with Steak. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, so the next question comes in from uh, Matthew. Uh, Mark, we might start with you for this one. I feel like it's a fund manager question. How can the small players best disrupt these big guys and conglomerates? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a uh, that's obviously we talked a lot about economies of scale. We talked about brand, so that is a very difficult thing as you're starting out. But yeah, it's building. I think we've seen craft brewers. Um, one of the things that I probably should have said about Anheuser Busch InBev is, particularly in the U.S., they're getting impacted a lot by craft brewers. So I think it's I think it's ultimately starting small. Um, I don't think that you are going to disrupt holistically a company that makes twice as much beer as anyone else in the world. But I think it's in those individual markets. It is building brands. It's craft breweries like this. Um, so that impact overall of many different small craft brewers can impact these large players, but it's not like one person's going to do it. Dan, what about from your perspective, buying a lot of beers from these big suppliers, buying a lot of alcohol from suppliers, how do you think small players should be disrupting the bigger guys and taking your dollars? Well, I think that the, uh, the, the, the bigger guys rely on supplier agreements and that's tying things up and those sorts of things, but ultimately, and, and look, probably 10 or 15 years ago, venues were, you know, in a very top-down manner, uh, dictating to customers that, hey, we're going to, you know, do a big supplier agreement, we're going to get a rebate, and we don't really care about your customer, what you might like to drink. Um, but obviously, that's no, that's not a great business strategy for, uh, for venues these days. You've got to uh, listen to your customer and uh, and keep, keep the taps open, as, as we would say. So, you know, that's... Uh, that's a challenge for the for the big big guys, but um, at the same time, it's a fantastic opportunity for the craft brewers to step in as the voice of customer resonates more. Andrew, this one is for you, and this comes in from online as well. So thank you, everyone, uh, sending in questions from online. Do government taxes, given that you're a lobby group, do government taxes pose a risk to the alcohol industry? Are governments likely to enforce taxes further or relax them? Uh, it, it is absolutely the biggest handbrake on our industry in Australia is the level of taxation on beer, wine and spirits. If you look at us globally and amongst other beer, wine, spirit producing nations, we tax our industry more than any other country. So it's a huge handbrake on reinvestment, creating jobs, uh, and that's the same for beer, wine and spirits. Um, you probably don't know that that beer in front of you there, nearly half of it goes to the tax man. Um, same with a bottle of spirits, with a bottle of wine, it's around a third that goes to the tax man. So it's a lot of, lot of what could be reinvested in our industry is absolutely sucked away. Uh, I don't think it's going to go up anymore because it's pretty high. It's up there right at the top for global levels. Um, we are hopeful that at some point governments recognise that uh, we could actually do a lot with that money back in our own pockets, creating jobs, export opportunities, and reinvesting in wonderful facilities like this. Uh, and equally trying to help come out of COVID. You know, we've got our hospitality industry who's been whacked across the, you know, across the face. A, a great opportunity for them to reinvest in their business is a bit of excise relief as well. I, I feel like uh, giving uh, the 
head lobbyist, I guess, for the alcohol industry, that question. He's so answered cool. that many a times before, <laughs> yeah. and he had the answer ready to go. So we'll blame, we'll blame Bryce for serving that yeah, one up. absolute softball. Uh, we want to hear uh, questions from the audience. So, uh, Bryce, do you want to grab a microphone, run around? People stick up their hand. While Bryce is finding the next question, I want to ask Andrew one more. Uh, last year, South Africa and India banned alcohol sales during COVID. What do you think would happen in Australia if ScoMo banned alcohol sales? Oh, I think there'd be riots in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> there would be uproar. The people would be walking down with pitchforks. Um, and the other big thing is, you thought there was a big problem with toilet paper? Imagine the issues with trying to get a beer, wine or spirit if they did that. So no, I don't think that's on the cards whatsoever here at Australia. Yeah. Uh, hi panel, thanks for the time tonight. Um, I, there's a, the two panels have actually been split into local and international investment by accident or by deliberate, I don't know. But I think the whole craft liquor industry is, from my punter perspective, is split into the big international brands and then the craft disruptors, even in the non-alcoholic space. Like, no one's drinking more alcohol, like they are, but there's more people alive. The, the alcohol uptake isn't increasing. The, the distribution is being split. Like, how do, uh, A, the big brands feel about competing with the small local premium brands and, you know, competing in that Australian space? And how do you guys feel fighting against that? You know, what's, how do you feel competing against these big brands that are trying to craft wash in your space? And, you know, what's your take on that? Is that going to get better or get worse? Well, I might just start with the, um, I guess the, uh, go back to what I said earlier about the consumer. It's about, you know, we heard earlier that people respond to brand. And, you know, a lot of people walk up and want that brand in a bar or, or in a retail outlet or online. Um, however, you know, there's a lot of interest in uh, supporting uh, new and interesting experiences and uh, it's easy to say supporting smaller business but really what it is, it's, it's new experiences and, and what's being uh, developed by those craft brewers and, and wine makers and spirit makers and uh, I think from a, a, a retail perspective and certainly a venue perspective, it's keeping all those options open, knowing your markets and listening to your customers and keeping yourself open so you can respond. Yeah, and I was just going to say, I, I think it comes down to taste as well. I mean, if you make an incredible craft beer that tastes amazing, of course, it has to be no elk. But, and you compare, I mean, I know for me, again, as a comparison, I'll, I will sell a hundred times more of a Heaps Normal or a Prohibition or naught than I would for any of the Peronis or the Carlton's in the in, in, in the non-elk space and again I ask customers when they come in what they would like and they say they want those craft beers because of the taste. Nice all right we've got three more questions do you want to hand it out Ren? Hi so um in terms of disruption through the non-alcoholic like space um internationally 
do you think that would that would be more geared towards larger brands making their own like alternative line of non-alcoholic, or do you think that it would there's a possibility that, for example, something like Sands Drinks um, would be able to become and the next conglomerate per se? Just uh, I guess in terms of spirits, um, Diageo actually owns Sidlip. So they, they have been investing, they, they have been buying brands um, within their products. They've, they obviously have low, um, low alcohol, um, Gordon's low alcohol gin. And so they, they're actually quite aware of all the trends. And uh, I think it's just another driver of growth. If the consumer wants uh, to drink less alcohol, they're going to have a product for the consumer. And you, you need to realize that these are huge companies with huge marketing products, with huge research uh, into to consumer demand. So they, if there's a trend, they're going to they're gonna try to fit the consumer demands as, as, as well as they can. You never know, they might end up buying Sands drinks. It feels like they just buy everything in yeah. their path. <laughs> It's not for sale. Wow, okay. Uh, another Do we question? have another question? Yeah, yeah nice. Hey, guys. Thanks for your um, time and your insights today. Besides Irene, what's the biggest uh, uh, threat to the industry as a whole? And then in turn, obviously, the, the companies that we potentially look to invest in. My outlook might be a little bit jaded here, but um, there, there is a fairly substantial anti-alcohol activist movement in Australia. So they've come out of tobacco... Their new focus is on obesity and alcohol and sugary and fatty foods. Um, and they're vocal and they're doing the same game plan that uh, they've done for tobacco. So the real threats that they're pushing at us is, is higher taxes, it is reduced availability, it is things like warning labels and those sort of things r reducing our ability to market. At the moment, the fortunate thing is we've got a wonderful drinking culture here in Australia where everything's heading in the right direction. So it, if we can continue that trend, then, it, then that sort of deafens that, that risk to us. But for me, that's, that's certainly on my radar is exactly where they're looking to move the public debate to. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only thing I would add to that is we are investors, right? And we need to be very careful to differentiate what happens in an industry versus investment opportunities. So... Yes, people are drinking less, but they're drinking better. And I think you mentioned tobacco, and tobacco is a really interesting, uh, a really interesting space to look at. So Jeremy Siegel, who's a professor at Wharton, wrote this book, and he looked at in the U.S. the S&P 500, the best performing stock, from 1925 to 2003 when he wrote the book. It's Philip Morris. Philip Morris makes cigarettes. And cigarette smoking kind of peaked in the early 60s and has gone down ever since then. But what did they do? They kept raising prices and there were low expectations for the company. So we need to separate those two things, right? So we can have a reduction in drinking. We can have people drink better. And Diageo's the perfect example, right? Every time you go to the bar, they've created a new Johnny Walker, some different color I've never seen before that costs more. And people just keep climbing this ladder. So I think as investors, I wouldn't be too worried about overall declines. And also, we're talking about developed countries. There's a per capita correlation between per capita increase in GDP versus per capita drinking, particularly around beer. So I wouldn't be too worried as an investor. I think, uh, I think it's an industry trend that everyone knows about. They know about it. It's priced into the market. I just wouldn't worry. Obviously, my personal opinion. Got time for a couple more questions. There's a few down here. Oh. One up the back, nice. nice. Hey, uh, thanks for the panel tonight. I appreciate uh, all the uh, candidates uh, speak on everything. Um, just a question for Andrew, um, just around the taxation on different uh, alcohols, so spirits versus beer versus seltzer. Um, do you think that's uh, 
consistent or do you think there's some discrepancy on the way the policy is tax, taxing different alcoholic beverages? Oh, oh, there's no doubt there's discrepancy. Uh, there's been a lot of tax reviews that have looked into this. Um, and there's historical reasons why. Um, so there's a, a lot of history behind Australia's taxation system as to why some products are taxed a little bit more higher than others and why there's, in, for beer and spirits it's actually on an excise basis, so it's on the alcohol content, whereas for wine it's actually based on your wholesale value. Um, and there's been a lot of reviews into this, but no real change. Um, a lot of recommendations to, to move it, but at this point in time, those historical reasons... Uh, there's political reasons behind it. There hasn't really been an appetite by any government of either persuasion to, to look at the taxation or, or have major reform in this area. So uh, we've got time for one more question. I'm going to make a rule. No more alcohol tax questions to Andrew. He's had his chance. <laughs> um, I don't know where the microphone is, but whoever's got it, do you want to pass it? Uh, I, I was just wondering what your perspective is on capital markets versus private equity markets for the alcohol industry and what opportunities there are for retail investment in the private equity market in Australia specifically. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's a, it's a hard question, obviously, because private equity is difficult to access generally as retail investors um, and is very, very deal specific. So it's very easy for us to sit here and talk about individual companies. Yeah, I, I know that's not a very good answer, but it's hard to yeah, it's hard to comment on private equity where it is like very, very deal specific. I guess too, from just a, a pub's perspective, um, you know, obviously RDC is listed, and uh, we talked about ESG earlier. That's something that you know we've, we've been listed for around three years, and that's something that's accelerated a lot for us in, in the Australian market. So, from a retail investor perspective, there's you know, we're trading at a, at a discount now at around 15%. And, uh, you know, there is opportunity there. And, and, and I think it's, you know, we run up against it more and more and more in regards to an ESG filter, which is an unnatural thing, but it, it is a policy. And, and, it, and, it, and, you know, alcohol, I'm seeing come on the list more than what it has in past. And, uh, and this is sort of accelerating, which is a, you know, a prohibitor for institutional capital and, and an opener for, um, for uh, retail investors. At the same time, it, uh, you know, it puts challenges there for, for these sorts of companies to stay in the, in the public markets where they could go into the private markets and, and, uh, and you know, possibly do better. Well, that um, does bring us to the end of tonight. We're stoked that we could do this. It's been an awesome night, and uh, this is not the first and only. We will be doing more all-access with Stake, so a massive thank you to you guys as well. The next one is going to be even bigger and better. We're thinking like MCG down in Melbourne or something, so um, it's going to be epic. Uh, a massive thanks. As I've said, we'll leave it there. Let's have some beers and some wine. All right, Bryce, well, that brings us to the end of the live show. The first live show, not the last. Yes. Um, but we want to thank Steak for helping us put it on. Um, you know, we've been talking about Steak throughout these two episodes, how they give access to Wall Street um, at $0 brokerage. You can make trades in seconds. You can sign up in minutes. If you use the offer code EquityMates, no space, and fund your account within 24 hours, you get a free stock. So a big shout out to Stake uh, for the work they're doing over there. If you did miss tickets, the best way to not miss tickets in the future is to sign up to one of our emails. Head to equitymates.com slash email and uh, you will be able to get access 
first pass access information, I guess, first uh, information on when the next shows will be live. So uh, sign up to our emails. But otherwise, Ren, we'll leave it there. Regular programming is back next week. And uh, always good to chat. Regular programming. I like that. (laughs) All right. uh, Sounds good. Speak to you next week. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.